Michelle Chen, your belabored co-host, with a special message. As you know, we've been bringing you excellent, independently reported labor stories regularly for almost two years now with this podcast, and this work costs money, not only to do the reporting, but also to produce it. And now we're asking you to help us out. If this work is important to you, please help Descent keep the podcast going by making a tax-deductible donation today online at descentmagazine.org slash donate. Or you can do it the old-fashioned way by sending a check to Descent at their office at 120 Wall Street, 31st floor, New York, New York, 10005. You can find more information at the Descent website, or you can email us if you have any questions at belabored at descentmagazine.org. Help us keep Belabored independent. Donate today, and thanks in advance. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to Belabored episode 65. We are, of course, uh, we had an election last week, and I'm sure everybody is all up on the results, so I don't really need to tell you much. Um, But, of course, some of the country's best-known union busters were re-elected last week. Scott Walker was re-elected in Wisconsin, as was Governor Rick Snyder in Michigan, about whom we will talk more on today's show. Um, and John Kasich in Ohio, Nikki Haley, who doesn't actually have many unions to bust down there in South Carolina, but still likes to talk about how she'd do it if she got the chance, was also reelected. In Illinois, very, very, very rich dude Bruce Rauner will beat Pat Quinn, though, as retired teacher Fred Klonsky pointed out it in these times, many union workers refused to vote for a Democrat who had been responsible for attacks on their pensions and organizing rights. As he wrote, if Democrats want to beat plutocrats like Rauner, they can't do it through cutting the pensions of workers like me. Because as odious as the alternative may be, many of us will never be willing to cast votes for Democrats who have aimed to gut our livelihoods. Once again, more about this on today's show. In related news, this election saw the lowest voter turnout since World War II. While some of that can probably be credited to new and extreme voter restriction laws, there's also been a lot of hand-wringing by Beltway pundit types about why voters didn't turn out to vote for Democrats. Democrats like Charlie Crist in Florida, who you may remember from when he was the Republican governor of Florida. Democrats like Pat Quinn. Democrats like Andrew Cuomo, re-elected in New York by a narrow margin that saw record turnout for the Green Party, Uh, You can hear more about the Green Party on last week's episode of Belabored with Brian Jones. Uh, After Mr. Cuomo promised to bust teachers' unions and cut a deal with Senate Republicans not to campaign for his own party to win in the state Senate, which it then did not. Uh, It turns out that when Democrats run away from minimum wage increases as Mark Pryor did in Arkansas, or attack unions like Cuomo and Quinn... It makes voters less likely to associate caring about working class issues with voting Democratic. Shocking, I know. Doesn't mean voters don't care about those issues. It means fewer voters think they will get any solution to those issues from Democrats, especially when Republicans, too, are pounding home the message about jobs in the economy, running ads shaming Democrats for being millionaires and for cutting things like, you know, Medicare, and pointing to the, quote, minimum wage economy as something that needs fixing. If Democrats want working people's votes, they need to prove they'll actually fight for working people. And yet it continues to mystify pundits around the country as to what would account for people just deciding to stay home. 
Um, so, while many progressives were uh, lamenting the actual quality of the candidates on the ballot, many did actually turn out to vote uh, in uh, in a direct democracy uh, for uh, minimum wage hikes. And so we actually saw um, four states and two cities uh, voted themselves a hike in the minimum wage, and the four states were actually red-leaning states. So in Alaska, Arkansas, Nebraska, and South Dakota, um, we saw people people turning out and casting the ballot for, um, you know, not their favorite candidate because they probably didn't have one, but uh, for, you know, a raise for really poor people, which is something that most people can get behind. Um, Now, in San Francisco and Oakland, they also um, had referenda for minimum wage hikes. And altogether, um, with the landmark legislation passing in Seattle earlier this year, we now see sort of a a groundswell of momentum around uh, minimum wage hike proposals that are uh, either uh, have passed or are being proposed. And in New York City, as we've discussed previously on the show, um, there's now a proposal in the pipeline to allow New York City to set its own citywide minimum wage of $15 per hour at least. And uh, other similar raises in other expensive cities with exorbitant costs of living, uh, such as Los Angeles, Chicago, etc. So um, all of this adds up to sort of a nationwide push for, um, you know, if we can't get the uh, politicians, we like to pass the laws that we want, we can at least vote for for things that are basic, like a higher minimum wage. Some of these uh, initiatives have actually been uh, pegged to inflation, which is um, something that can help remove it from the sphere of partisan politics, which is another plus. Um, Another major ballot initiative surge in this past election day were uh, paid sick days. So voters in Massachusetts, as well as Montclair and Trenton, New Jersey, passed ballot initiatives for paid sick leave legislation to basically give workers more earned time off, and that would in turn allow people to do basic things like stay home and attend to their family's medical needs without having to sacrifice a day's pay. Um, But as I noted in an article I wrote for The Nation recently, um, with all these measures on the books now, the pressure is on to actually make sure that the people are actually paid their due in wages. So in order for these minimum wages to actually have an effect on people's livelihoods, then we're going to need a very strong enforcement regime. And one of the things that has been lagging is um, even when there is a relatively progressive law on the books um, that is seldom followed through properly or in a comprehensive manner by the labor enforcement and regulatory agencies that are available to people, whether it's on the federal or on the state level, a lot of this is due to just a simple lack of resources. Um, These agencies are uh, understaffed. Um, They're overwhelmed with uh, an incredible amount of Um, the incredible volume of wage violations that they have to tackle and investigations tend to be extremely spotty if they even happen at all. A lot of the problem with the enforcement of minimum wage in our laws in this country, whether it's on the city level or on the federal level, is that simply there aren't the resources there to actually proactively investigate employers and so it's completely complaint driven. And as the National Employment Law Project noted in a recent report, 
This is all adding up to wage theft that costs an estimated $50 billion a year, and there's still no adequate enforcement um, in place in a lot of the cities that are slated to get uh, minimum wage increases. And so what needs to happen now is, um, well, National Employment Law Project has laid out a platform for reform that involves um, not only robust worker and employer education programs, but also an enforcement strategy that is based on partnering with community groups to enlist them as sort of the eyes and ears of the government. And so when the uh, number of inspectors that you need aren't there, then you can at least um, incorporate the community into these efforts and also raise awareness and raise some political consciousness while we're at it. So going forward, yeah, it's great that we have higher minimum wages on the books, but what's going to happen when employers are actually held accountable for fulfilling those obligations. So speaking of places that raise the minimum wage, in one particular place in Alaska, they also voted to keep union rights. I know it's shocking when you put these things on the ballot, people like them. Um, There was a referendum in Anchorage to repeal local ordinance known as the, quote, Responsible Labor Act. Yeah, that's that's a good one, which was passed by the Anchorage Assembly um, and limited union employees pay raises to one percent over the five year average of the Alaska inflation rate, prohibiting strikes, eliminating binding arbitration when the city and union reach an impasse over the terms of a new collective bargaining agreement, eliminating bonuses based on seniority or performance, introducing, quote, managed competition by allowing the city to outsource some union jobs to private contractors, and limiting collective bargaining agreements to a maximum of three years. So unions and their allies managed to get a referendum on this onto the ballot, and 54% of people in Anchorage voted in favor of repealing the darn thing, upholding a tradition we've seen since Ohio overturned Governor John Kasich's anti-union law back in 2011. Voters consistently support union rights when they can do so directly. When it comes to voting for politicians who may or may not actually consistently support union rights, the whole thing gets much more muddled. And so speaking of low-wage workers, um, you might not associate the uh, low-wage workers movement with a place like Whole Foods, which, as you may know, uh, has become the figurehead of the natural foods, shishi, yuppie, shopping, consumerism movement, and um, is often, you know, not really held up as an example of your standard low-wage retail employer. But a group of workers in San Francisco is trying to take the management at their Whole Foods store to task um, by launching a campaign um, and threatening uh, job actions if their demands for livable wages and decent working conditions are not met. The campaign kicked off last week, November 7th, with one store, the Whole Foods Market at 4th and Harrison Streets in San Francisco. Um, But there are plans in the works to maybe push this movement nationwide. In any case, um, the workers at this one store um, presented a petition last week. Um, They asked for a cross-the-board $5 wage increase. Currently, the workers are paid um, anywhere from $11 to $19.25 an hour. And they want to raise that to something that at least starts to approach the um, hourly wage that is required to actually be able to afford a house and a decent standard of living in San Francisco, which is now pushing about $30. So um, in order to get towards that standard and make sure that Whole Foods, the, um, you know, 
the beacon of green consumerism can actually uh, make a sustainable livelihood for their own workers. The workers at Whole Foods are partnering with um, the industrial workers of the world to um, the, to actually push Whole Foods and hopefully um, send a message to other Whole Foods workers around the country that they will not put up with um, the sort of uh, current labor structure, which is, they say, is prioritizing growth over workers' rights. And so they complain of things like not only low wages, but constant understaffing, um, inconsistent hours, um, also, uh, quote, monotonous, uncreative, emotionally destructive, and irrational work, um, repetitive motion industries, um, and uh, condescending managers um, who uh, believe in slashing labor um, rather than actually questioning the uh, neoliberal policies of the management to promote growth above all else. Um, It's almost like Whole Foods is just like any other low-wage employer. Imagine that, despite their um, lovely veneer of being such a um, such a uh, environmentally friendly and uh, humane employer. So, um, in order to push back against that, they are not only asking for a five dollar wage, but they're asking for regular raises, um, comprehensive health care coverage, a reliable retirement plan, um, access to more paid time off that they say quote allows us to live a life beyond work and to participate with our families and our communities. Imagine that. Um, And they're also asking for a a better uh, quality of work. So they're asking for timely and consistent review schedules, right, so that uh, so that workers are not subject to arbitrary reviews, and they want to curb scheduling practices that they see as um, too erratic and too destabilizing for workers. And um, so we don't know where this campaign will go, but they plan on returning um, this Friday. We're recording this um, you know, prior to the actual action, but uh, we'll see what happens in the future. They're planning to return this Friday to the management and say that um, if their demands are not met, they're going to escalate. Along with the uh, recent elections, the news headlines were replete with headlines about Detroit's supposed rebirth. That's right, the city that has been in crisis for so long is now supposedly being reborn because the city's emergency manager has brokered a massive deal, um, euphemist- <clears throat> euphemistically called the Grand Bargain, <laughs> supposedly to get the city's house back in order. Um, Among the biggest casualties of this plan are the municipal workers who have seen not only um, their livelihoods slashed, but also their pensions being attacked, as we've seen in other cities around the country. The municipal workers are now on the front lines of this battle to uh, basically resist um, what is seen as basically a power grab by the private sector and by bankers um, to not only ruin the city's finances, but to pauperize its um, public sector and you know destroy what's left of organized labor now that um, the auto industry unions have thoroughly come under attack now they're going after um, the uh, the municipal unions that have kept the city running for so long we talked to Mike Mulholland he is the president of the Utilities Union of Detroit as the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, Local 207. Um, They've been holding down the fort in terms of trying to battle against the efforts to basically destroy their union and to rip up their pensions. And he talked with us about what's going on in the city right now and what it's like from a labor standpoint, what it's like for the city to basically have its finances further ruined by the emergency manager. So 
break down for us what's going to happen after the bankruptcy ruling to the union and what's going on with your pension? Okay. One of the problems with uh, talking to the media about this has been that, you know, you try to break it down to make it as simple an answer as possible, but the reality is so complex that it's uh, difficult to do so in small sound bites. But having said that, I'll try to break it down a couple ways. One is for the city workers in general, they have a uh, greatly reduced pension. They probably have, will end up with 40% less pension. They, in addition to that, if they retire prior to being eligible for um, Medicare at 65, generally, they will um, have no health care insurance. Uh, they will be given a stipend between $125 and $175 to pay for their Obamacare. That stipend will just be a portion of what they have to pay to get the kind of health care that we got prior to the uh, emergency manager and the uh, bankruptcy. In addition, there were other concessions uh, regarding health care for the uh, active employees and their contract was ripped up and replaced by you know one that did not give very much uh, rights to the workers whatsoever. All the union officers that were full-time administrators of the unions have been uh, sent back to work and so uh, especially for unions that have a significant amount of members in them that you know it, it makes the, uh, it cripples the administration of the union on a day-to-day basis and thus it makes you weaker and in addition to that you have to file grievances very quickly or they consider them resolved and you know since you're not in the office <laughs> and you know you may, you have to do this after your you know daily grind it makes it more difficult in addition to that uh, for the people who are retired, such as myself, I've retired and I'm serving out my term uh, as is AFSCME's custom, um, and uh, till late 2015. It, the retirees, while the press generally referred to it as a 4.5% cut, in fact, that's only the beginning. You probably lose another, I don't know, it depends on, you know, you, you can't make an exact figure out of it because things vary so much. But to lose your health care uh, is going to cost you at least another 15%. And then we had a capped cost of living allowance that, that increased your pension by 2.25 every year. And uh, for the general employees, um, we lost that entirely. And, and the actuaries that figured this stuff out said that would be about another 14% cut. And then in addition to that, the fine print of the plan of adjustment, as it's called, uh, uh, has a whole bunch of triggers in it that if the market doesn't perform, there are further automatic cuts without anybody voting on anything. So, you know, if you really look at it, depending on uh, how old you are, et cetera, et cetera, a bunch of other factors, you know, it could easily range up to, well, like with me, uh, you know, in addition, to, there's a there's a, mm, an annuity that we used to save in, which was like a 401k plan that was administered by the pension board. And I'd saved money in there for 30 years. And I had a significant nest egg, which I, I, we're told we're supposed to do if we're going to retire, right? Because, you know, you're supposed to not run out of money. So 
I took that out and in, because I thought that would be the prudent thing to do and invested it in uh, some money market stuff. And now I'm being told, well, you got too much interest given to you by the pension board, so now you owe $37,000, which you can pay back by, um, we'll take another 15.5% out of your pension for the term of your life. And since I took a smaller pension so that I could give a portion of it to my wife when I die, uh, she will also pay a 20% cut uh, during the course of her life. <clears throat> so you add that up, you know, and it's, and it's no exact figure, but it's way past 4.5. <laughs> and so it, it's been, a, in my opinion, a, a collaboration by the press and the uh, emergency manager to basically whitewash this for uh, the, the the public. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't seem to me that cutting a whole bunch of money out of people's pockets is going to help Detroit rebound from any of this. Well, especially when you consider many of the most stable uh, neighborhoods, and there aren't many of them in Detroit, uh, are, are anchored by city workers who have enough money to uh, be able to survive and if they're of the relatively well-paid uh, city workers such as myself, I mean, I retired, I was making $20 an hour, uh, they, they, you know, we could send our kid to college or something. And, those, you know, that's a different kind of um, neighborhood than the neighborhoods where nobody has a job and the strippers are stripping all the houses. Yeah. Um, take us back a little bit in terms of how did Detroit get to this point of bankruptcy being... Um, the option that, if not the only option, certainly the option that um, the people in charge wanted to take. Well, you know, you, you know, you can go back 60 years if you want and talk about the uh, uh, building of the freeways, uh, the building of the uh, water system out to the suburbs, uh, you know, uh, the building of the factories into the suburbs, uh, and uh, you know, the, the then and then you know, the white flight. Part, you know, uh, that had gone on before, uh, you know, in the, the starting in the 50s. And then uh, lots of people say, well, the urban rebellion of 67 was, the, you know, the reason people left. But, you know, people were on their way out way, way before that. And there were structural ways for that to happen, including uh, elements of the GI Bill, which were, you know, designed for white folks. But specifically during, you know, my working life, it, there was a, uh, a constant drumbeat from Lansing, no matter who was in office, Democrats or Republicans, obviously Republicans more vociferous, to cut the what's called the re state revenue sharing to cities. It was a part, a part of the uh, state funds which would uh, go to the cities and had been there for a long time. But uh, in particular, once Detroit elected a black mayor in 74, every year uh, any kind of budget was a battle as to see how much you would cut stuff to Detroit. And in the 80s uh, and 90s, it became uh, more uh, intense. And then finally, there was a deal cut between the mayor at the time, uh, Dennis Archer, and uh, Governor John Engler, uh, that the city would uh, reduce by small increments uh, until it eventually disappeared, the income tax on people who worked in the city but didn't live in the city, and in exchange, they would stop the cutting of the revenue sharing at a certain level. 
and, and, and at least not cut it anymore. And immediately, the Lansing then reneged on that, but the city kept cutting the income tax by this increment. And so most estimates are that the city is owed about $750 million uh, from uh, the cuts in that in, in the revenue sharing, and which was supposedly, you know, a uh, quid pro quo. There was supposed to be a, a trade-off, and and so you know, basically, that's that in itself is reason enough. And then of course, there's all the federal cuts to cities and stuff that happened in addition to that. And you know, cities in general, Detroit just being an extreme example of it, have been left to rot. And so, you know, that gets to the point where they bring in an emergency manager who just happens to be a expert in bankruptcy. And then when he reviews the situation, he just happens to come up with the idea that the only thing that's possible is bankruptcy. <laughs> so uh, it, it, it was all quite um, cynical, really. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so interesting that, uh, you know, you're rounding out for us the perspective from Detroit, because what we hear so often in the media is that Detroit is this blight on the state's economy, and it's the problem city, and it's a big drain on, you know, services and whatnot. But isn't, it, that, it, isn't that cold for black? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and of course, I mean, that's replicated throughout the country in a lot of ways. Um, sure. And can you talk about... Um, put this in national perspective because we've seen in cities across the country um, it's it's public sector unions that have been hammered um, in every sort of fiscal crisis and public sector pensions are often kind of this uh, this boogeyman and, and they are attacked from um, you know left and right about uh, you know there being such a burden and uh, creating a financial crisis and so um, and then, you know, as you uh, as you noted, they bring in these sort of emergency interventions that inevitably fall the hardest on on labor, on public sector labor, um, to be exact. So, um, what exactly is going on here? I mean, what are the politics behind this? Um, and you know, as we've seen before, there's pre- plenty of evidence to show that this so-called crisis is in many cases either overblown or wholly preventable. Um, so, so what do you think politicians are driving towards when they talk constantly about public sector pensions being a burden? Well, first of all, uh, you're right. It is centered on public uh, sector uh, workers because to a large degree, the, the employers have crippled or, or uh, collared uh, private sector unions, which are such a small uh, percentage of the private sector workforce uh, that they that really they become kind of irrelevant uh, and not a real problem for the boss. So they've now turned to what's left of the union movement in the United States, which is the public sector, where the last time I saw it was 37% of the public sector was uh, unionized, but I'm sure that's gone down in the last couple of years, last time I looked at the figures. But at any rate, they have manufactured, as they have all the way along, they manufacture crises. Uh, the crises uh, then uh, are used to rationalize cuts and the, the cry of there's no money. And uh, of course, now they're going to play uh, uh, the public sector unions' um, benefits and wages against services for for the people in the uh, communities. And they'll say, well, you know, it's either um, these guys get decent wages and, and benefits, or uh, 
you know, or uh, city services, but you can't have both. And this is, of course, the austerity program that's been global. And and so now it's come home to roost, and uh, they've decided that they can't squeeze any more out of the rest of the uh, third world and stuff. And so now they're going to come home and squeeze stuff out of the uh, workers in the uh, most advanced, you know, rich countries. And so it, by crushing the unions, or at least making them um, into little lapdogs that are powerless, they they are able to uh, control not only the the, the relationship between uh, capital and labor, but they're also being able to politically dominate and, and convince people as much as they can that resistance is futile. And and that get, convincing people of that is, you know, is as good as making them futile. Cause as long as people believe that, you know, and that the, the power uh, to that be are the only powers that will ever be, and you don't have any ability to change that, that that sets up a situation where, you know, it's all good for the guys on the top. Right. And of course, you're turning different groups of workers against each other by essentially, you know, pitting these services that impoverished people now really need in this economy and the public sector workers that are inevitably held up as, you know, the the source of the problem, even though they're the ones providing services. For sure. So people people say to you, uh, you know, you hear people say, well, I don't have a pension. Why should, what should I worry about your pension? Well, the question is, you know, really is not whether or not you cut my pension, that's not going to really help you, Joe. And the question is, is why don't you have a pension and why don't you have a union? Exactly. Uh, <laughs> yeah, like let's not make everyone even more miserable. <laughs> right, that isn't going to, you know, you know uh, if I cut your throat, it's not going to feed me anything. Yeah, no, I forget who it was that, that called that negative solidarity, but I think it's such a great term <laughs> yeah. for it, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's kind of the part of the, uh, the um, political mm, sourness Right. That uh, is uh, so prevalent now in the nation yeah. in many, many different ways, left, right, and center. So I want to go back to the emergency managers because this is sort of a unique thing in Michigan that yeah. you know we've seen a few places try to emulate, but really has just been a thing there. Um, could you talk a little bit about the history of the emergency managers legislation? I know that it was repealed and then repassed. So yeah, could you explain that a little bit for us? Sure. Uh, there was emergency manager legislation in the 90s, and um, the and I, I was part of forces uh, in Detroit who fought against the emergency manager being brought in in the late 90s to take over uh, the Detroit public school system, and that has been basically under emergency manager now for decades, and uh, it, it, you know it gets in worse shape. Um, every year under state control, but nobody seems to take that into consideration. But so it, they wanted to be able to go after more, including the pensions. And so they changed the law. And that, by the way, that was that was imposed upon uh, the city by um, by the Democrats as well as the Republicans the, on, on the on the uh, city teachers. And then the school system is separate from the city government under Detroit's uh, rules. So they changed the, uh, the law and started putting more and more black cities and black school districts under you know, emergency managership and 
busting the unions, etc. So there was a referendum state, uh, there was a petition drive that uh, made a referendum occur. The referendum occurred, the people of Michigan voted out the emergency manager law, and then within months, the lame duck session went in and made it even a little worse concerning the pensions, and then passed it with an appropriation section on it that would formally stop it from being subject to repeal by any kind of referendum. So again, this, the level of cynicism uh, and you know no respect for democracy whatsoever is is uh, you know would be shocking if I would say ten years ago I would somebody told me this was going to happen I'd say stop reading 1984. What's the matter with you? So uh, that's how we ended up with this emergency manager and and again the Republican governor Rick Snyder then appoints an emergency manager through the the uh, various processes that happened that were all kind of rigged. And first they uh, asked the city to sign a consent order, that, just like they did the schools. And the consent or, uh, order was such that there was no way the city could adhere to it because the bottom line is the city doesn't have enough revenue coming in to run its basic you know, affairs, especially since the state cut out the revenue. And then they appoint uh, somebody from Jones Day, and Jones Day uh, lawyers were the ones who wrote the uh, script about how to do this, uh, you know, and that's why they picked Jones Day. And then they bring, uh, you know, Kevin Orr in as the emergency manager. He says, oh, oh I'm uh, quitting my job at uh, Jones Day. Yeah, nod, nod, wink, wink. And then guess what law firm he decided to bring in? Jones Day. It was like, <laughs> like it was all like just, uh, it would be funny if it wasn't so, uh, painful. I mean, and I'm waiting for my 20% cuts to kick in. Yeah, and because we just finished a really depressing election season, I did want to ask how this played out in the governor's race in Michigan. Snyder was unfortunately reelected, but how did this in particular, the bankruptcy in Detroit and then other labor issues play this time around? Well, I think uh, part of it was that the, the Democrats never fought the imposition of emergency manager on Detroit. I mean, basically, everybody from liberal to conservative and and all both the major parties have, have kind of agreed, either tacitly or openly, that this is a beautiful thing. And you get the free press and the news, the, two, the, the more liberal uh, editorial and the more conservative editorial boards. Everybody agrees on everything, including the re-election of Snyder, based on based on the bankruptcy. That was what, uh, you know, won, you know, them over to, you know, in particular, uh, the free press, the more liberal, uh, right? Uh, they were the ones that uh, were kind of switched up and, and endorsed not a uh, Democrat, but a Republican. And it was all based on that, you know, this was a wonderful thing. And every, I can't get past the headlines to read all the junk that's in the paper uh, in the last week about, you know, how the grand bargain was so wonderful and we saved the pensions and we saved the art. And they didn't save the art. They they, they uh, gave it to some corporation, name, name of foundations, and they got it on 10 cents on the dollar. It was a beautiful uh, thing for them. So at any rate, but, the, but it's been the media's job to sell it. And uh, the, uh, the people of Michigan, you got to remember, these are the same people you know, uh, I want to talk badly about my my working class folks, but the truth is, 
they're 85% white, and they voted uh, to get rid of affirmative action, and uh, they um, voted to, um, you know, ban gay marriage, and, and they voted to endorse, you know, Snyder again. So, I mean, again, that was a given the choices that there there was no clear lines being drawn by the Democrats. And whether or not the Democrats could have won, I can't say for sure, but I know this much. By not drawing lines, you don't give people anything to fight for. It reminds me about the, what the Democrats did when they they, they ran from Obama. It was, it, that, kind of, uh, that kind of program is not uh, one that can uh, inspire anybody to vote for you if they're looking, if they're feeling a little sour anyway. Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned this a couple of times, right? But um, yeah, I want to talk a little bit more in depth about how these racist narratives about Detroit um, played a role in this situation, that city that is perceived as being black is described as irresponsible, is unable to take care of its own business, that the cities that have been taken over by emergency managers have been majority black cities. Um, And now, of course, the idea that like white people from other places will move to Detroit and save it is, is being you know, put out there. What What is the impact of all of this sort of racist framing and language, Ben? Well, I think for one, it's been very demoralizing for the community. And Detroit has been like a center of resistance for a long time. And all these things that came down on us, the, the constant attempt to take the water department from the is people of Detroit, et cetera, et cetera, which finally they've accomplished to some degree under emergency managership. Um, these constant drumbeat of of, of uh, anti-Detroit stuff, and anytime a politician wants to get some votes on his right flank in the suburbs, he just says bad things about Detroit, which is always, you know, a dog whistle for black people, and and he or she gets, uh, you know, a good chance of getting elected. This has sold a kind of a um, it's, it's made the, uh, the people of Michigan weaker, subject, subject to uh, being uh, uh, fooled by uh, racism, but also weaker because we're divided against the people who are screwing us, which just happen to be most of the time white. But also, we now have a white mayor for the first time in, you know, since 74. And uh, I heard people in the black community so, uh, actually say, well, you know, let's give the white guy a chance. You know, the, the, the black people screwed it up as if the reason why uh, things went wrong or the or that Kwame Kilpatrick was a uh, was a jerk was because he was black. <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, even even in some of the more conservative elements of the black community were won over to that uh, conception. And of course, the the few white people that are here, you know, almost all of them were down with that. And it meant that, again, a further dividing of the working class against, you know, uh, where they should be united against all the things that are coming down on the entire state. They, they, there's a tendency to, to uh, you know, look for somebody to blame. And they did so. And, of course, that was all pumped up by politicians and uh, on, the, on the right and, and, uh, and the liberals, you know, uh, hid from the question and tried to pretend that, uh, you know, the, what's the phrase about uh, a rising tide uh, rises all bo- raises all boats, whatever. But in fact, uh, trying to ignore the questions of, um, you know, that, that special minorities uh, face, uh, both Latino and 
and uh, and black. Those questions are so key for labor. If 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 if, if labor does not effectively try to propel the fight for civil rights and immigrant rights, the future of labor is real shaky right now. I mean, you know, organized labor. Yeah, it's an existential question because, I mean, think about, you know, you talk about how different groups of workers are pitted against each other. I mean, mirroring this racial divide is the public and uh, public sector versus uh, private uh, sector workers divide because what has been a traditional bulwark of the black middle class, the public sector unions, and, and that's falling away uh, in cities across the country with these same sort of charges demonizing public sector and government is, in general as corrupt, incompetent, you know, kind of feeding again these twin narratives of government not working and and uh, and any kind of uh, a black leadership or black power being, uh, you know, bad for everyone. <laughs> That's right, and 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 if you add all those things together, and thanks for pointing out the the the, uh, uh, the crucial role that uh, public employment has played in the uh, black uh, community, which is uh, it adds up to you know a people saying that you know you have a new Jim Crow. Well, I agree with that uh, because it, it, it's not it's not the same as the old Jim Crow, but it's creeping relatively fast. And 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 uh, every and and it, and it, it hits you from the side and from behind, so it doesn't come into your face and say, you know, it's, it's not the Ku Klux Klan, but uh, you know, everything from the the banning of affirmative action to the loss of uh, minority faces in uh, the elite colleges, uh, you know, the public colleges, they, all, to to the attacks on uh, Detroit workforce, to the uh, now. 20 years probably uh, where Detroit will not have any real um, the, the people of Detroit will have no democratic control over their local government. Um, these are things because it goes, you know, the bankruptcy stuff goes on forever. And uh, these things add up to a new Jim Crow and, and, and it'll require a new civil rights movement to defeat it. Yeah, yeah. Leaving aside this um, spin that's been put on the bankruptcy, which everyone seems to take for granted as necessary, um, you know, there's clearly, obviously, an economic crisis going on in Detroit right now, and you and your union, of course, are on the front lines of that. From your perspective, um, what what are the real root causes? You know, if if it's not these supposedly unsustainable pensions or, um, you know, corruption or excessive spending. I mean, what would have been a way to at least start to resolve some of these long-term issues without undermining labor or degrading the few social protections that are left? Well, you know, what is unsustainable is the the United States um, urban policy, except for a couple cities that have a lot of finance capital as their foundation, New York and San Francisco, maybe Atlanta, most of the cities are in dire straits. And uh, this has a racial uh, element to it because of the Latinos and Latinas and and, and, and the black people that populate these cities. But it also has a an urban versus suburbs, uh, you know, quality. But you just, uh, 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 no nation can thrive while letting its cities turn into rust heaps, and and so that's what I consider to be unsustainable. And 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 the attacks on on uh, our pensions 
are not going to save Detroit. As I always say, you know, no jobs, no justice. You know, if there's no jobs, uh, who's going to pay taxes to uh, keep the uh, infrastructure of Detroit together? All that never was taken care of. That was all, all the stuff that they talk about. You know, they cut our pensions to uh, improve services, which is, you know, their bottom line. There's no way enough um, money has been gained by uh, stripping our pensions. But it, it is amazing that all this um, private money comes into Detroit immediately after they elect the white mayor. And so everybody is aware of that, and, and that you know suddenly the lost checkbook has been found, and for urban areas across the nation, there has to be public funds pumped into it to build the infrastructure and make the cities livable so that people flock to them. Already you have a young generation that wants to come in. Okay, that that leads to gentrification. And, and I see some of my neighborhoods turning into uh, hipsterville, but but nonetheless, you you do need a, a um, you do need a repopulation of the cities in many aspects, especially Detroit. And you can't do that by cutting funds and having a, um, a gated city in the center uh, of the of the uh, town and let the neighborhoods just go to hell. They actually had a plan that they actually put in the paper. A couple of years ago, this is meaning the, the the city that they were going to um, consider cutting off water and gas and electricity to certain parts of the city, rather than pay somebody to move into a different house. And then they were just going to uh, actually dig up the roads and uh, sell the uh, pavement for uh, scrap. This is this is an actual plan that they put out that they pulled away from it when it you know hit the news, but this tells you the way they're thinking. This is their strategic thinking. This is not a strategic thinking that's sustainable. For one thing, urban rebellions are absolutely unavoidable under those circumstances. And, you know, and, 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 you know, it's been my statement to my union members over and over again that without some kind of urban uprising, Detroit is on a downhill path for the majority of the people here and you know and people move out more and more first they came for the schools and then of course that led to a lot of people moving out so they could take their kids to the uh charter schools in the suburbs and now it's continuing with the water cutoffs yeah yeah and just going back to um you know the role of detroit being a historical kind of flash point for um militancy and, and resistance as you were saying um, you know, looking now as, as you watch it becoming hipsterville, um, from a personal perspective, you've been a labor activist for a long time there. Where do you see the role of, of the unions and labor? I mean, what's left of them in terms of um, Detroit's future? And especially with all these new sort of social movements and organizations moving in, um, you know, each with their own designs for how to rescue or revitalize the city. I mean, do you... Yeah, to build a small business and get a grant. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> what, what what direction is there for, for activists in Detroit, you know, to really try to affect change from the ground up? Well, 207 has long been led by radicals such as myself. And, and uh, 207, you know, went on strike in 2000. 12 in the fall. And uh, the reason I'm bringing this up is because I 
believe that there, I, I still am optimistic that we can win, but we can't win by pursuing losing uh, strategies. So what we did is we went on strike, hoping that we could drag the rest of the uh, city workforce, which is in a very similar situation with the emergency manager clearly coming, but not yet here, bankruptcy clearly coming, but not yet here, and it was time for us to draw the line now to stop it before it happened. None of that was inevitable. None of it was inevitable financially, but more importantly, none of it was uh, inevitable socially and politically. If if Detroit had risen up, they would have backed off. They, they, they didn't attack us because we were too strong. They attacked us because we looked weak. And so what happened was the top dogs of the union decided that they would just straight, uh, straight arm us. Nobody ever showed up to picket lines until finally at the end they showed up, uh, or in the middle of it, they showed up uh, with a uh, federal order saying that we had to go back to work. And we resisted that for another three days so that we could get all our people back to work that they were trying to fire for starting the strike. But in the end, this is the policy that has to be pursued by unions. Unions can't for that matter, civil rights organizations can't expect to defend the gains that were made in the past by by court briefs. Uh, you know, uh, Martin Luther King used the courts, but he never relied on them. You know, he if you know it didn't stop him from going into the uh, streets, and he went into the streets. Though all the Democrats in the world told him not to go in the streets, and that's the problem. Is we're pursuing right now. Uh, symbolic fights after the uh, horse has left the barn, as I put it, and you know, and and, and so they basically uh, helped to kill the strike, which was their key to victory. If they had spread that strike to the rest of the city locals, and uh, and the fact in the in the schools, which also didn't have any contracts, and, and the teachers were uh, fuming, and they were under emergency manager, we could have we could have chased that boogeyman away. But we weren't able to do so because we were led by people who saw it more important to maintain their uh, credentials with the Democratic Party than it was to represent the interests of the members in the community that they serve. That's really the truth. And the reason I'm – I don't want to put it in a negative way. I want to say that we can still do this, but we have to learn the lessons of not what not to do so that we can go back to what we need to do, which is to lead uh, the – the nation. And, you know, my mother, she always was in favor of the unions, even though she wasn't in a union during very much of her life, because she always saw the unions as the people who fought for Social Security and for unemployment and all that stuff. And, and so she always taught me, you know, that the unions were important because they fight for everybody. But it's been a long time since the unions have gotten that message out. And you can't get a message out just by a campaign of publicity. You have to put your money where your mouth is. And they have chosen to, you know, play small ball and then try to uh, uh, hope, I guess, hope that the Democrats are saving them. God, you know, that's a, that's a useless, you know, that's what they're hoping for. And that's not going to happen. If if the unions don't fight for themselves, nobody's going to come to the union's aid. You don't come to the aid of anybody who's not fighting for themselves. Mm and so I just I just want to wrap up now with um, what's next for your local. Um, you know, within your union, what are people talking about now, and, and what are some next steps that you're looking towards? Well, the additional burdens put on our members is that a federal court order and the 
management's incorrect interpretation of that order and the fact that all uh, under emergency manager uh, uh, the um, labor laws are all null and void has allowed them to make our members rewrite uh, our titles uh, descriptions, job to titles descriptions, and, and then make people, regardless of seniority, reapply for their jobs. So they're, at this point, the members are very scared that they are going to be one of the ones that won't get the title because they're cutting you know, jobs severely. And then, in addition to that, when you get your title, if you're one of those lucky ones, uh, and get to keep your job, then uh, you will be forced into another union other than AFSCME 207 because AFSCME 207 is too much of a pain in the rear for them. And so uh, that's what's uh, going on, and that's what people face. And so, the, you know, the union meetings are often, you know, uh, 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 people who are very demoralized right now. And I, I tell them, you know, all that I can say to them and also all that I would say if, if anybody was listening in the nation is, you know, Yes, we can fight. Yes, we can win. And we have to know that the uh, people at the top are not the only people that get to make decisions. But it's going to require stepping outside of people's comfort zones. People didn't sign up to be Martin Luther King. They signed up to, you know, uh, shovel doo-doo at the sewage plant and, and uh, retire after 30 years. <laughs> you know, but, but they're now in a position where history has put a burden on them that they're you know, generally, uh, uh, you know, not sure if they want to handle. This isn't just uh, people at 207, but everywhere. And until then, until that policy is changed and, and unions start striking and striking uh, in, a, um, in a way that uh, provides the surrounding community an opportunity to join them in, in, in a kind of a more general uprising, well, until that's happening, I can't lie to people. The, the, the pensions are going to be cut further. The uh, water is going to be privatized. Hell, they'll privatize air if they can get away with it. And, and you know, it's just it's there's there's no uh, sugarcoating it. We have to adopt policies which are uh, militant and, and not on small basis, but on large basis. If the unions don't do that, then eventually they'll be defeated entirely. And then the workers will have to find some other way to organize themselves. I surely believe that that uh, you know the the desire to fight back is always there. It, it smolders sometimes. Sometimes it goes dormant. But in the end, it always has to come out because they'll keep attacking until we stop them. Then there's not there's no uh, basement. We'll just keep going on until we smell. Uh, fire and brimstone in that stairway. We, we've got to stop it ourselves. And the only way to do that right now is, you know, through the unions and, and uh, uh, more importantly, if there is some kind of, you know, rebellion in the urban areas, which I believe that is inevitable too. But until that happens and our people try to make it happen, well, uh, there's nothing but bad news. I'm, you know, I can't lie to anybody. It's nothing but bad news until we fight. That was Mike Mulholland. He is the president of AFSCME 207 in Detroit. And we will, of course, bring you more on the situation in Detroit as it unfolds. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org.
It is, of course, the time of the podcast where we say, "Arg, I wish I'd written that. Uh, this week, the piece that I wish I had written, um, I really did, I think, say arg when I read this, too. It's a piece titled The Rise of Extreme Daycare by Alyssa Quart at Pacific Standard Magazine, um, supported by Barbara Ehrenreich's Economic Hardship Reporting Project. And of course, I said arg because this story hits so many of my buttons at once. It's a piece about working time and the endless work cycle, about care work and low-wage work, and what unpredictable scheduling does to families. It is a story about a 24-7 daycare center, Dee's Tots, which is run by a family in New Rochelle, New York. They accept children dropped off and picked up every day, um, all day long, except for between the hours of 3 and 6 a.m., They will still keep your child through those hours. That's just the only time, the three-hour period of time, where you cannot show up on the door and expect somebody to be awake. Dolores and Patrick, who run the center, work around the clock, waking up in the middle of the night to care for babies who are sleeping there, are up again by six to greet parents dropping off or picking up in the morning. They work on holidays because the parents that they serve have to work on holidays. They go away once a year for their anniversary and are closed for a state-mandated 15 hours of training each year, and that is about it in terms of time they take off. Parents with money and extreme work schedules hire nannies to care for their kids 24-7. The state pays for some of the kids who stay at D's while other parents scramble to pay out of pocket or to cover the difference between what they can afford and what the state will pay for. The parents who rely on 24-hour daycare working the, uh, the kinds of jobs that we talk about a lot on this podcast, fast food and retail, jobs where your schedule is often made by a computer that's analyzing sales data rather than by a human who understands that you have children and responsibilities outside of work. Some of them are care workers themselves, nurses and hospital workers whose hours are also unpredictable. These are the fastest growing jobs in America, and so Court points out there will be a lot more extreme daycare in the future. One parent who relies on the center is a single mother who works at a supermarket from 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. and at a Home Depot from 6 to 10 p.m. six days a week. She sees her kids between 2.30 and 5.30. Court points out, too, that the poor parents who rely on this daycare may need it because they've already strained family and friend support to the breaking point. She writes, When single parents are struggling economically, scholars have found they rely greatly on their closest kith and kin for support, far more so than their wealthier counterparts. And while that reliance can breed intimacy, being 30% more reliant on your friends and family, as single parents are, according to one study, can also backfire. As Rosanna Hertz, a sociology professor at Wellesley College who studies working single mothers, notes, social networks depend on reciprocity. But if you're working all those hours, what can you reciprocate? You can't offer your neighbors or your sister much. You've overspent your welcome. Our extreme work schedules are self-perpetuating, creating more and more work for others, and often the work that is created for those others is low-paid because it is already devalued work. If we considered raising children to be work worth paying for in the first place, single mothers wouldn't be stringing together two low-wage jobs in order to survive, and leaving us with 24-7 workers paying the bills one child at a time, making sometimes less than minimum wage themselves, especially when you spread that over a 24-hour day to cover the parents who have to go do that minimum wage job. Way to pass down the costs along the production chain. A little bit, a little bit. Yeah. Um, 
So uh, my pick for the week was called In India, A New Generation Peon at Your Service. It's by Shashank Bengali, and it uh, ran in the Los Angeles Times. So you may be familiar with services like Uber and Lyft, um, you know, sort of emblems of the so-called sharing economy, um, as well as the increasingly popular micro-labor providers such as Crowdflower and um, TaskRabbit, providing so-called crowdsourced labor and sort of these mini gigs that um, people do for um, micro amounts of money, and they're supposedly supposed to add up to something like a sustainable wage for people. Um, All these services claim to offer a personalized approach to service, whether it's uh, hailing a cab or sorting your inbox or uh, helping you move. And uh, with the click of a button um, on your mobile device or you can use your broadband connection, you can basically tap into a vast pool of cheap freelance labor willing to do just about anything um, and uh, as long as you're willing to bid for it. And the idea is that there's a huge market of folks out there looking to pick up these ad hoc jobs with little structure, uh, little institutional overhead, and you can forget about things like, you know, <laughs> minimum wage laws or uh, union protections, um, and uh, a vast market of people willing to pay a small sum. You know, it's easier than maybe hiring someone for an actual job or negotiating a formal labor contract. So um, how does this play out on the other side of the world? Well, the LA Times ran this interesting piece, and it shows that when it comes to micro-labor, India has actually perfected the process by fusing modern technology with a rebranding of this age-old industry, uh, indentured servitude. So basically, um, the traditional task rabbit in India is uh, known as the peon. And so Bengali reports that um, peons are a fixture of life in Mumbai and other Indian cities, taking care of the mundane tasks that others don't have time for or simply don't want to do. Um, with a, you know, what you might call a surplus of, of people willing to work. Um, you can walk into even the tiniest office and a peon will fetch a glass of water. You need someone to run an errand and a peon will schlep across an overcrowded city of 21 million for you. But then Bengali explores a new digital a version of this traditional vocation. It's called the E-Peon. So he follows a day in the life of one Aditya Giri, a teenager who was forced to drop out of school uh, when his father's tailoring business went under. Now he's trying to save for his education um, and maybe, uh, you know, uh, get a get a career, a middle-class job. He has dreams of being a photographer. Um, he's trying to get back into school by hustling uh, in the peon life. So as an e-peon, he's basically on call. And uh, under the old system, uh, Bengali writes, a peon would be attached to a business or a household for decades. But the founder of Giri's company, a Mumbai startup, called, get this, Get My Peon. I really, they just didn't think very yeah, hard about no, these, did nope. they? Well, um, but uh, in addition to providing uh, laughs about the name, um, uh, <laughs> this company doesn't think that works for young Indian urbanites who lack the time to vet and manage full-time staff and who run their lives off of their cell phones. So, putting two and two together, you can now use your mobile device uh, not just to get a ride or order your food, um, you can actually order a whole person to do your bidding for whatever price uh, you're you're willing to pay or whatever price the uh, Get My Peon company uh, deems <laughs> fair. So this workforce, by the way, is all young men, uh, inevitably, um, and they represent a class of Mumbai's population that, um, like people like Giri, uh, they find themselves shut out of the opportunities to join India's supposedly burgeoning middle class. 
um, they're at the margins and they harbor the hope that if they get enough money, they can really make something of themselves by getting back into school, maybe getting a degree. So this isn't exactly sort of the caste system of yore, as, as stereotype would have it. Um, it it's, it's a modern update. It's a contemporary version. But nonetheless, these workers are essentially pauperized by virtue of the fact that they um, are structurally left out of the new neoliberal economy that has overtaken uh, the new, the supposedly new India. And what I found interesting about this was that, um, you know, you will find this endless pool of unskilled job seekers, uh, as Bengali calls it, uh, quote, sort of offering the hope that they can advance um, and, and you know, even people with modest incomes, he writes, uh, can almost always find someone willing to take an irritating task off their hands uh, on this promise of, of one day ascending into the middle class. Um, I, I wanted to flag this article because um, while, you know, the system of indentured servitude sounds like it's ages away from us, it, it shows how little difference there is between the servant class of a supposedly bygone era and the supposedly more sophisticated, flexible workforce of today. Even though Uber and Mechanical Turk brand themselves as the wave of the future, they really capitalize on this very old-school model of service delivery, one that combines automation with real human labor to create the most flexible labor force possible, which fills in the gaps that require human care, such as driving a car, but at the same time, break down the production chain into tiny micro-tasks that can be easily purchased a la carte and exploited um, daily. So without needing to pay actual wages or benefits, the system works pretty well unless you happen to be the EPON at your service. If you have ever been an EPON, please email us and let us know. Um, you can always send your comments, your thoughts, your whatever, your election results to us at hashtag belabored or at belabored at dissentmagazine.org. We, of course, want to hear from you about what you think about what's happening in Detroit, what you think about the election results where you came are from, or you can just write us to, to giggle about the people who named their service Get My Peon. Peons of the world unite! <laughs> we'll be back in two weeks. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit DescentMagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.